Whitney. I'm Danielle. And we are the founders of Sakara Life, on a mission to nourish your body and transform your life. Sakara is a Sanskrit word that describes the action of turning your thoughts into things and manifesting your reality. We believe that who we surround ourselves with, what we watch, what we listen to, what we eat, the information that we take in, impacts the way we think and therefore who we are. The conversations that follow are with bold thinkers who have had an impact on how we view the world, ourselves, and what it means to live the Saqqara life. The intention of these conversations is to push each of us to greater heights so that we can turn our thoughts into things and all shine our light a little brighter. We are so excited to be on this journey with you. Welcome to the Saqqara life. Also, please note we are recording from our homes via Zoom, so please forgive us for any sound issues. At Sakara, ingredients and their sourcing are important pieces to what we do to bring you fresh, nutritional meals. Food consumption and farming are two very important topics to us, as both have lasting impacts on the earth and our bodies. In today's conversation, we're sitting down with one of our Saqqara farmers to dig into topics like what makes an ideal food system, what it means to eat organic, and why you should care, along with the impact farming has on our earth and how to grow the best greens possible. So if you're digging into your Saqqara salad right now, there's a good chance you're eating his greens. Jim Livengood is the co-founder of Radical Farms, a hydroponic grower of baby greens and herbs. Since its inception in 2014, Jim has built and refurbished greenhouses throughout the Northeast, designed controlled environment and field agricultural systems, and produced and sold more than 3 million pounds of greens and herbs, which I think Sakara bought a big portion of those. <laughs> and before we welcome Jim, we just wanted to go over a few important stats. First, our global food system is estimated to contribute over 30% of greenhouse gas emissions. And more than half of those emissions can be attributed to livestock production. And what this means is that what we eat, how we choose to eat, and the farmers that we choose to support greatly impact the environment. I hope you enjoy this conversation. And please join us in welcoming Sakara farmer, Jim Livingood. Hi, Jim. Hi there. Good to see you. Excited to do this podcast together. I know that we've been talking about it for a little while and you and I got to have a pre-conversation and we just, we love what you've been doing. And obviously you've been a great partner to Sakara over the years. So thank you for that. And excited to talk more with you today about, yeah, your philosophy on farming and greens, one of our favorite topics. Indeed, mine too. <laughs> hmm. We like to start off every podcast by asking about your mission. So what is your personal mission here on earth in this lifetime? Yeah. So our mission is to provide the best greens possible and do so in a way that is respectful of the environment in which we grow them. It's really pretty straightforward and it really hasn't changed since we started, though that as a guiding mission has, as I'll talk about, changed the way that we approach our production. But through all of that, it's it's really just that. We grow and provide the best greens that we can because we ourselves want to eat the best greens possible. So that's really been the thing that's guided us. And do you think that that's your personal mission? What drives you on the day-to-day? -day? What makes you want to deliver the best greens possible? So really, it's a combination of uh, curiosity and without sounding sanctimonious, like a desire to be an agent of equitable existence. I mean, I think that one thing that we've certainly in the past couple of years, but really over the course of our generation come to grips with is what you're endowed with as a result of your luck of where you were born. We tend to refer to that as privilege. And I think that that's an, an apt term. But so really, it's a question of like, what am I doing with my privilege? Am I making the world a better place or, or not? Or am I sort of abdicating the responsibility that comes with being in a position of privilege. And so I tend to think of that pretty regularly as I, you know, make life choices, both minor and major is, am I making the world, am I making the universe better by what I'm doing or not? And so can you take us through how you got to Greens with that personal mission? Yeah, absolutely. So I was writing grants at an interactive science museum when I graduated from college and had no desire in particular to get into farming. 
But one of the grants that I was writing was for an interactive food exhibition. And one of the exhibits within that exhibition was a hydroponic system. So I did a, a bunch of research for this grant and like became completely sold on this idea that you could grow pretty much anything, pretty much anywhere, as long as you had a system that was tailored to that type of growing. And so it was a combination of sort of, <laughs> frankly, boredom at my job um, and just like a real like excitement around this, the, the ability to, to use this technology uh, to grow food. And the more I looked into it, the more I became convinced that this was going to be the manner in which we grow food in the 21st century. Looking at it specifically in terms of the efficiency of output per square foot or for the amount of land that you're using to grow, it seemed like it was the answer to a lack of arable land a declining amount of available water for agriculture, and a frictional challenge of getting food into places where fresh food is not always available. And so that combined with my enthusiasm for the technology itself made me sort of obsessed with this. I actually, <laughs> sorry, I remember at the time, I had been a, a history and African-American studies major. And so when I started talking to like my friends and family about farming, they were like, A, what are you talking about? And B, I'm not actually that interested in this. I'm just humoring you. But after a couple of years of that, uh, it became clear that this was more of like a life passion than just a, a passing fancy. So that's that's really sort of how I got into it. I linked up with a friend of mine from high school who uh, was doing this type of growing in the Newark area. He was working at a, a Gramercy Tavern and saw the quality of greens that they were using. So he thought that they could grow these these types of greens as well. So he and I hooked up and, and founded Radical with the idea of growing these fantastic high-end greens that we were really psyched to eat using hydroponic technology. So that's how we got started in, in 2014. Can you walk us through what hydroponic means, the difference between you know, traditional agriculture and hydroponic versus aquaponic, and what it means not only in terms of how you grow it, but what it means for the end product as well? Yeah, absolutely. So really... It's uh, helpful to think of plant production on a spectrum where the most natural end of that spectrum is a plant growing in nature without any human intervention. And the other end of that spectrum is plants growing in fully contrived environments. So like growing in a warehouse under lights where all of the stimuli of the plants are accounted for by the grower, right? So in a traditional field growing context that, that we're all sort of familiar with, like the iconic neatly planted rows of crops. In that case, many of the most important stimuli are being still provided by nature, right? So crops are still getting sunlight. In some cases, the, the tilt of the soil is appropriate for that particular crop. And so the farmer only has to account for those needs of the plant that aren't met by the environment in which they're growing. So as you move toward the more interventionist end of that spectrum, you can put that plant under hoop house, right? And at that point, you've deprived it of getting rainfall, so you would need to irrigate it. If you put, put an opaque roof over it, then you would have to provide the light that it would need. If you're removing it from soil, then you would need to put fertilizer into the nutrient solution that's feeding the plants, right? And so with each step along that spectrum, you're basically just accounting for more of the plant's needs. So in the hydroponic context, what that means is that you've removed the plant from the soil and are providing the, what the roots need, which is typically water, oxygen, and fertilizer. You're providing that through a water-based nutrient solution. From that threshold, right, you could then imagine all of the other stimuli that you would take on. And so when we think about modern hydroponics, it really ranges from a greenhouse like the ones that we operate in to you know, the more um, high-intensity, high-input you know, warehouse growing. So it doesn't really have to do with the sort of ecological impact of the way you're growing, which is to say there are ways that you can grow in a field that have a high or low ecological impact. There's ways that you can grow in a, a hydroponic context that similarly range from particularly emissive to not particularly emissive. But really, the threshold between field and hydroponic is, have you removed it from the soil? So in the case of aquaponics, it's essentially you're marrying aquaculture, which is the raising of fish in a controlled environment with hydroponics. And you're essentially using the effluent that the fish create 
to fertilize the plants, which then theoretically remove the ammonia, which becomes nitrite, which, which becomes nitrate. They remove that from the solution, making it clean water, which then, again, theoretically is filtered back into the fish tank. So aquaponics is, is a very cool system. It's definitely something that I've been curious to experiment with in the past, but for various reasons, it's not particularly commercially viable. And it also relies on a deep knowledge of both aquaculture and hydroponics. Frankly, growing greens hydroponically is difficult enough that uh, we've never really had the stomach to take on the fish as well. Yeah, I think one thing that's so interesting about what you're saying is there are certainly kind of perceived notions or judgments around hydroponic versus soil-grown plants. And I'd love for you to kind of dispel some of the common misconceptions. But I also think it's important to talk about, you laid out that spectrum, right, of what's kind of more normal or, quote, organic on one end of the spectrum, but agriculture in and of itself is also, you know, pretty new to this species. So even to think about your food growing in soil in a way that's contrived and managed by humans is also pretty new. So the leap from soil to water, I think in general, people just have a hard time to change, but it's not, I think it's a smaller leap than foraged greens to, (laughs) you know, farmed greens in general. And I think the point around that is people forget that soil is not a renewable resource, really, and not in the way that we typically farm. So I think, I I know none of this is really a question except to say, could you maybe outline some of the common misconceptions around hydroponic and some of the common misconceptions around traditional agriculture as well? Yeah, absolutely. No, that is such a crucial point that the, the leap between forage grains, or even really between pre-industrial agriculture and modern or industrial agriculture, that's a greater leap than between conventionally farmed, you know, 20th century outdoor growing and hydroponics. And the reason for that is that there became this philosophy or a philosophy was developed that posited that soil was really no more than a substrate to hold roots so that you could then input all of the fertilizer that the plant would need. So it didn't matter if the soil, what the soil contained or whether it was soil or sand, as long as the inputs were accounted for, that would be enough to make the plant grow. And that was really a, a function of the synthesis of nitrogen, which enabled the mass production of fertilizer so that you no longer had to cycle back any of that nitrogen into the soil, right? So whereas in a traditional farm, you would need, typically it was livestock, or nitrogen-fixing plants to regenerate the nitrogen available in the soil. Once you could synthesize it, you could just keep pouring more and more of it in, and plants would continue to grow. And that's really the bet that we made in the middle of the 20th century, that this was going to be enough to power the growth of crops that we needed to feed the population. So growing in a hydroponic context is really just taking that to its logical next step, which is if soil is just a substrate, well, then you can take that substrate and put it into little cubes and put it onto a table that floods periodically, and then you have hydroponics, right? If your mentality is all of the plant needs are the inputs that I'm giving it, then really there are limitless iterations of that version, right? And hydroponics is just one of those. But as you're saying, it is one thing that we've learned after 70 or 80 years of just dumping fertilizer and dumping synthetic nitrogen into whether it's soil being used as a substrate or in a hydroponic context, is that, in fact, there's vastly more that goes into the success of a plant that's not accounted for by just simply putting more and more stuff in. And on top of that, we've seen the, the environmental effects of what that model of farming has wrought. So, I mean, to the extent that there is a barrier between hydroponics and field growing as practiced in the 20th century... It's really just, have you taken that plant and that chunk of soil and put it into a grow system and given it roughly the same nutrients and the same stimuli that it would have gotten if if it were in the field? Those two types of growing are much closer to each other than a sort of a farm of antiquity where the resources are, are cyclical and within the farm, if that makes sense. And for our listeners that aren't familiar with your farm in particular, Radical Farms. Can you share a bit more about what makes your growing practice and ethos so unique? Describe it to us. What are your farms look like? So at this point, we have a farm in uh, Newark, New Jersey. It's a hydroponic greenhouse. 
And at that farm, we grow mainly esoteric sort of high-end greens, as well as microgreens and edible flowers. What makes a green high-end versus not? That's that's a very good question. So when we say high-end, what we're referring to is the price that it can command. And typically that price, you would get that price because either it's difficult to grow or it's difficult to ship. And often because it tastes really good. And so people are willing to pay a premium for it. So I would say high-end really is quite subjective. It's essentially an expression of what the market determines. It's potentially more delicate. It isn't as sturdy as certain other greens out there per se. And that also goes into what makes it taste so great, right? Like we don't want to be eating really tough greens. We want something that is more tender and flavorful. High end. Yeah, high end. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely right. But so to take a step back, so our original goal was to grow all of our product indoors, again, because we were under the impression that this was the less ecologically damaging means of growing, right? Like we looked at the problems of industrial agriculture and thought that hydroponics and the more you could control, really the better. And it was sort of an an antidote to the damages that industrial farming present. What we found as we expanded, though, was that, in fact, we were emitting more greenhouse gas for each pound of greens that we grew than would a farm in California emit. And that includes the cost of shipping, the GHG that is emitted when you ship greens across the country. And how do you measure that for yourself and compare it to, you know, if we were sourcing greens in California and shipping them to our New York kitchen? So really, you sort of add up the greenhouse gas output for each of your inputs. So in the case of our greenhouse, it was the biggest ticket item by far was heat. So how much heat were we using and how much greenhouse gas did that correlate to? To heat a pound of arugula, let's say, in the Northeast in the winter, relative to the inputs in the farm in California, which are roughly the same fertilizer profile, farm equipment, the packing house, and then the shipping, right? And so essentially, if you were to say that the demands of the greens in the Northeast are, to use a one-to-one, essentially it's, are you heating for six weeks in the winter in the Northeast? Are you heating those greens and allowing them to survive in what is an otherwise inhospitable environment? Or are you growing it and then only shipping it 200 miles to your guys' facility? Or are you growing it in an environment that can support it without those same heating inputs and then cooling it for three days or four days as you ship it across the country? And so like, we were able to see that There were some efficiencies that we could gain by way of fertilizer input and composting on site, but they weren't nearly dramatic enough to overcome how much greenhouse gas we were producing in order to heat it. So the more we sort of looked into that, the more we realized that it was really kind of challenging to our mission, right? Like it would be one thing to say, all we want to do is service a market. And so therefore, as long as we can grow greens that people are willing to buy, then we're willing to grow it this way. But what we saw is that it was so dramatic that it, like, it really wasn't even close and that closing that efficiency gap by having a more efficient heating system or by moving slightly further south, it still didn't come close to achieving the efficiency that California's greens could achieve. And I find that so interesting that you came into this with your hypothesis and your stance that Really, your intention was to create farms that were better for the environment, bringing farms into local areas, decreasing the ship times and distances. And then what you found once you got into it was that your hypothesis wasn't necessarily true. And so you shifted your business model because what you want to do is to really give people the best greens in a way that is also the best way for the environment. So I love that like once you got into it, you weren't just looking at what is the best perceived way to do things because you could continue to go out and market to the world and say that we're better because we're closer, we're more local, whatever it is, but you didn't go down that kind of greenwashing path. You decided, no, we like to do things in the way that is actually best for the planet. So I really love that you have that awareness in your business. 
as part of that, I think it'd be interesting to talk about why traditional agriculture isn't sustainable in and of itself. And I know there's things that you have to do, not only land clearing, but also there's, as far as I understand it, in order to, there's like three ways to keep your soil healthy, right? There's cover crops, there's fertilizer, and then there's, what is it called? It's like you have to put your soil in fallow or something like that, which it means like you leave it dormant for, I don't know how long, one to two years, which means then you have to have that much more land because you can't be a farmer not making a crop. So if you have to leave acres at a time, basically unused as the soil builds itself up again. So can you talk through some of the reasons why traditional agriculture in and of itself is not a sustainable practice? Yeah. So, I mean, really what it comes down to is this idea that soil is simply a substrate that you can continuously put inputs into to get the same crop yield because fertilizer is reasonably cheap because pesticides are reasonably cheap and because there's a demand. I'm not at all an expert in the policy around the federal policy around farming, but there's a clear market incentive to grow a specific band of crops, right? Particularly soy, wheat, and corn. And so that incentivizes monoculture, which doesn't, as you're pointing out, leave a lot of room for crop cycling or for cover crops or fallowing. So essentially we have a a system that's set up to treat soil as, again, as nothing more than a substrate and produce the same crop year over year over year. So what that has led to is a tremendous increase in the amount of particularly nitrous oxide that's released from synthetic fertilizer. It's a really powerful greenhouse gas, much more powerful than carbon. And it's also allowed, once you're no longer bound by the obligation to treat soil as something that's, for lack of a better word, that's living, and you can just continuously subject it to the will of what you want to grow, to your will, you're then able to grow feed for animals, right? And there's definitely a perhaps understandable demand for animal protein. And so you're then, you're using that land that could be used for calories that are going to be consumed by humans to provide feed for animals, which then produce a ton of methane on top of the nitrous oxide that was released when you were growing the feed and are getting far fewer calories from that. So this is a a stat that I just wanted to share with you guys that is sort of a a proxy for why this isn't sustainable. So 71% of the Earth's land is habitable. About half of that is used for agriculture. Of that half, 77% of it is used for livestock, either for grazing or to grow animal feed, right? And so such an enormous, isn't I mean, that's just like, Staggering, right? It's staggering, especially knowing how much animals contribute to greenhouse gas emissions, especially because of what we're feeding them, which is part of the monocrop problem also. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. And so, right. So basically what we have is a situation where we have forestalled the natural ecological boundaries by synthesizing fertilizer, right? So like at some point, If you imagine a world in which we had never figured out how to create nitrogen, then the planet could only support as many human beings as there was nitrogen to grow plants to feed those human beings, right? So when we figured out that you could synthesize nitrogen, then we sort of jumped the shark, if you will. We exceeded those those natural ecological boundaries, right? So there was a agronomist who in the early 20th century, Vote was his name, said that this was folly and that in fact, any ecosystem can only extend its bounds for so long before it hits a sudden collapse, right? And that we were on the brink of that collapse, whether that's going to come in 50 years or 100 years, that it's inevitable at the pace that we were going. The alternative view to that, Norman Borlaug was the chief agronomist behind this idea, was that we would have to use every tool at our disposal, technologically and otherwise, to grow as much as possible and to feed as many people as possible. And so he really ushered in this notion that like, essentially that technology will save us, right? The retort to that was like, technology may forestall the inevitable ecological collapse that we're facing by growing this way, but it's going to happen one way or the other. So we've bet really heavily on the Borlaugian model, right? Which says like, we can always just innovate our way out of whatever corner we back ourselves into. I mean, whether or not that's correct, we're definitely, that's the path that we're on. And I guess we have yet to see to what extent that that will be borne out. 
but it really is quite concerning when you see like a third of the world's land is degraded because almost all of it, with some exceptions on the African continent, is being treated the way that we have grown for the latter half of the 20th century, which is just put more stuff in and externalize all the costs of that. So really, the, the reason that it's not sustainable is like, at some point, the earth will bake enough of the farmland, and we will exhaust enough of the soil that we can no longer that the global ecosystem can no longer bear the tools that we use to produce greens or to produce food, I should say. Yeah. And I think that's a really common misconception or naivete is just understanding that the way we're doing things right now in modern agriculture is not sustainable. And so things like, you know, what you're doing with hydroponic is one of the ways, hopefully we're going to back ourselves out of one of the corners that we've put ourselves in. And knowing all that, obviously Whitney and I are deep kind of in the organic consumer space. And so there are people out there that don't think hydroponic should be able to be labeled organic because it's inherently organic means grown in soil and it's the health of the soil. What are your thoughts on that? And why is it that you think some people are anti-hydroponic? Yeah. So, I mean, the real distinction between at least the USDA organic certification and crops that aren't, that can't be certified is whether the inputs are themselves derived from an organic source. So essentially you would be an organic practice in order to be certified would not be able to use synthetic fertilizer or synthetic pesticide. The principles of organic though, as I understand them, are a lot deeper than that, right? And involve things like resource cycling, increasing biodiversity, and certainly not using synthetic fertilizer or synthetic pesticide, but not using those not just for the sake of branding or for the sake of not using them because the perception is that they're bad, but in fact, because over the long run, they do degrade soil and they do limit biodiversity. So by these standards of the USDA, there's no reason why hydroponic growing shouldn't be considered organic, right? As long as the inputs that you're using are organic, then theoretically, the crops that you're producing are organic. However, I am sympathetic with the resistance that some people have to the organic label being applied to hydroponic produce because it does kind of avoid the question of soil health, right? Is like whether or not the USDA certification process respects that idea, like at least the point as I understand it of organic is to increase the both the flavor and the nutrient profile of plants, the way that you do that is by growing in a way that more closely mimics the natural process that would get them there, even if it's slightly slower or more difficult or more expensive. And so you're sort of just sidestepping that by growing hydroponically. I mean, I would ask if somebody is particularly concerned about eating organic, my question would be, what is the goal of eating? What is your goal of eating organic, Mm -hmm. right? And if you're comfortable eating USDA certified organic, produce and looking no further than that, then you should have no issue eating greens that are eating produce that's grown hydroponically. I think that the main issue or the main like sort of failing of the organic industry is that it doesn't regard output as a mark of the worthiness of the food. So you could have an organic farm that has just as many inputs and just as many negative externalities as a non-organic farm. But as long as it's certified organic, it has that sort of halo effect. And that's, I think that in the long run, that is not likely to change the trajectory that we're on. But I'm also very sympathetic with people who, in a world in which we have a ton of information and it's sort of difficult to, to discern where things come from, to reach for something that is, at least they can say, I'm putting this in my body and I have some idea that it was grown well. But I would really caution that unfortunately it's not that simple and that very often organic practices can be less sustainable or can be more emissive or more consumptive than inorganic growing can be. But I would also add just lastly that there's a real range of how you can practice organic or inorganic growing, right? Like you can grow in a sustainable way organically, you can grow in a non-sustainable way organically. Similarly, you can grow non-organically, sustainably, or not sustainably. So as much as I would like to say, you know, it's a simple answer, this is what we have to do. The fact is it's, it's actually a lot more complicated and even harder to discern as a consumer what variables the product you're buying has considered. 
Yeah. And I think that originally when organic certification kind of came on the market, it was to help the consumer understand that this product was not grown with synthetic chemical fertilizers, pesticides, herbicides. And so therefore you're getting less chemicals into your body. And now I think that the consumer cares about that, but then also about the sustainability piece. Like how do those chemical pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, fertilizers, et cetera, impact our planet, impact our soil health, impact our water systems? You know, glyphosate is being found in our water systems, in our bodies, in our breast milk. So it goes into our babies, even if they're not eating this produce. And so it's interesting that you're talking about that that organic certification seal doesn't say that the farm also is sustainable and that while it's not using those chemicals, it might be having even more greenhouse admissions or these other things that while we care about chemicals in our body, we also want to have an earth and a planet for our children to live on in the future. Maybe we need to have some sort of sustainability certification in the future. Yeah, beyond, we talk about a beyond organic certification yeah. all the time. It definitely needs to go beyond organic. And Sakara doesn't have organic certification on our meals because we don't see that as the end-all be-all when it comes to the quality of food and ingredients, that you have to look beyond that, just like what you're talking about, and get to know our farmers like we get to know you and, and understand how is the produce treated? How do the farmers treat the planet? All of those pieces go into who we should be buying from and how our company impacts the planet as well. Absolutely. I mean, and that's one of the, I mean, in addition to Sakara's food just being really good tasting, one of the most valuable services is doing that due diligence on your guys' end and establishing over the course of time credibility with your customers so that they know that what you're doing is something that they're willing to buy into or eager to buy into. And it's not, I mean, what my partner and I have said over the course of our, our partnership with you guys is like, we really don't, like, we think it's difficult enough for us to keep control of our growing practices and our sourcing practices at our partner farm. And so to do that over the course of a much larger menu and with many more inputs is really difficult. But I think it's a thing that we, as a food system generally, and as a culture generally have to do. And so it's really cool to see you guys doing it and you're doing a great job. Well, it's getting easier now too, because when we started Sakara, we were trying to develop relationships with farmers so that we could have consistent product being shipped to us. And farmers didn't answer emails. I grew up in a family of farmers. My grandmother was one of eight children, the oldest. She had seven younger brothers, almost all farmers. And they, you know, they're of the older generation. And I think farming was something of that generation and that younger generation wanted to get into tech and into finance and other types of careers. And I think it is having a shift into a new modern day for farming where technology is a huge piece of it. And so for us, getting to know farmers is a little bit easier than when we used to have to literally like drive to the farm and walk on and wave at them and, and get their attention in order to right. develop relationships. Yeah, no, totally, totally. I mean, also anybody that has your guys' meals would say, I definitely want to be a part of this too. One of the best things about working with you guys is getting to then eat the greens that we've grown in your guys' <laughs> meals. It's like, it, it is truly, truly a joy. I just, I just had a meal five minutes before we got on and the greens were superb. Excellent. High end, high end. <laughs> high end. <laughs> And now for a quick break, we wanted to take a moment to tell you guys about one of our newest Sakara products, the Foundation, which is a packet of your daily essential supplements, all Sakarified, so to speak, meaning completely clean, plant-based, bioavailable, and coming from whole food sources. Lots of times people think that supplements are just pills that you take, but really you should use the same level of scrutiny and standards 
that you would for your food. So these supplements are not only incredibly effective, but also incredibly clean. After taking them just for a couple of weeks, you'll feel increased energy, better digestion, more restful, deep sleep, brain clarity, and boosted immunity. And we like to think of this as our nutritional insurance. So yes, first and foremost, you want to get your nutrients from the foods that you eat every single day. But if you are a Saccharolite, which we know you are since you're listening, you know that we believe in eating clean and playing dirty, that none of us are perfect, nor would we want to be. Sometimes life gets in the way. And even though I get Saccharolite, food delivered to me every week. Some weeks I just don't eat as well as I wish I, I could have. And so this is a great way to make sure you're getting all of the essential nutrients you need to feel and look your best. And for all of you Sakaralites out there right now, we're gifting you $15 to use towards your first purchase of the foundation. Just use podcast 15 at checkout on sakara.com. And we put a lot of love and work into creating these supplements over the past three years at least. So we hope that you love them just as much as we do. Enjoy. Okay, let's get back to the episode. Can you talk a little bit about, have you done any kind of measuring on like the nutrient value of your greens versus soil grown? So yeah, we have. And what we found is that they're roughly comparable, but I hasten to add that it's not, I'm not a statistician, so perhaps I'm not even qualified to say this, but it's not a sufficient sample size to say that that is the case universally. I mean, it depends on the farmer no matter what, right? Right. So it depends on the, on the farmer. It depends on the cultivar. It depends on the environment in which that particular crop was grown. And so what we haven't done, we've been curious to do this and, and honestly should, is, that, is see over the course of a given season, if we're comparing our greens grown in Newark to the same crop grown at our partner farm in California, what are the effects that that has over the course of a given year? But what we see is that for the most part, the plants are absorbing roughly the same or developing roughly the same nutrients and have a, a pretty similar profile. That said, our practice of growing indoors is very similar as far as its inputs to what our partner farm in California does. The only difference is that we use a blend of synthetic and organic nitrogen and they use only organic nitrogen. So I would say that it's pretty, we feel confident when we see that they're roughly the same to extrapolate that for the most part, the greens that we grow are the same from a, a nutrient perspective as those that are grown in at our partner farm in California. But we're limited both by sample size and by the factors that we can really judge, right? And then on top of that, the question of like, what is the effect when you eat the greens? I mean, and again, I'm, I'm also not a nutritionist, so I, I can't say that there's necessarily a huge difference here. But when we're testing greens that are three days old from either place, that's one thing, but if it then gets processed or if it gets shipped, like does it stand up better coming from our greenhouse or coming from our farm in California? And to be honest, I'm not totally sure about that. But I guess I'm curious if you guys could shed some light on this. Would you typically see more nutrient content or more diverse nutrient set in organic produce than you would in non-organic produce? Yeah. And what this actually leads me to my next question for you, which was a lot of times things like different phytonutrients and antioxidants are sensitive molecules. So when you're spraying them with herbicides, pesticides, fungicides, et cetera, you know, a lot of times in, in organic crops, we find that the antioxidant levels are actually lower. So I'd be curious to know kind of what they are in your greens, especially given that Typically in hydroponic farming, you have to spray with that much less, right? Because you're not dealing with the outdoors that you are spraying against, right. so to speak. No, that, that is true. I will definitely look into that. But I will say that my understanding of this, and please correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong, but my understanding of this is that one of the advantages of not spraying is that when you do get a low-level pest infestation that within a given crop, the plants within the crop signal to the others that that pest is around and will mount defenses that both protect the crop during its life cycle and 
enhance its enhance like its sort of natural essence, if you will, enhance its microbioactivity and its flavor in some cases, and just make it a generally hardier plant. Mm-hmm. Is that is that right? Yeah, and I think there's this documentary on Netflix, right? It's like the Mushroom Matrix or something like that. I don't know if you know the answer to this, but I'd be so curious. So basically mushrooms, what we think about mushrooms are kind of the ones that end up on our plate, on our pizza, whatever. But there's actually species of mushrooms that run so deep underground and they're what connect one plant to the next. So they are actually like the highway of information across the planet. And so they found that like trees in one place can talk to trees miles and miles and miles away via this matrix. So they can, trees can tell other trees, you know, Hey, we're running low on water. Just so you know, there's like a drought over here. And I think that that's one of the things that's lost in traditional agriculture anyway. And so when I hear some of like the thoughts around not anti-hydroponic, but some of the concerns about like root systems, et cetera. It's like traditional agriculture doesn't allow for any kind of real root system. I mean, if you see things that are naturally grown and how deep their roots run versus a traditional, especially monocrop like wheat, soy, you're talking many feet into the ground root system versus centimeters (laughs) of a root system into the ground. And so as you think about nutrients. And if our plants, our plants are gathering nutrients from the soil, the deeper the root system, the better. And at least in a hydroponic scenario, you can solve for what is the kind of ideal root system in order to optimize the nutrient profile of the plant. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And such a good point. And uh, I feel like the example of the mycorrhizal network that connects plants is the exact reason why viewing plant production as simply a matter of inputs is folly, right? And like we have to have some humility about what we understand about this and don't. And if you practice hydroponics and you're right to say that there's a scenario in which you're able to cultivate that sort of network over a longer period of time, it's really still the question of, are you simply accounting for your inputs or are you trying to create an ecosystem within that, within your uh, production system, right? And so I think that the, that's one of the ways that the hydroponic industry has gone astray in the last couple of years. Again, it, there, there's market incentives to do this, and they are very much in keeping with the, our 20th century understanding of how to grow crops. But it's in that same thing of like, well, why don't we just account for more and more and more of these inputs, and that will produce it without understanding that, in fact, the course of evolution doesn't account for the speed with which we want to grow greens, right? It doesn't account for optimizing the number of pounds that you're producing per square foot, right? And so we have to, if we want to continue to be able to produce food and exist as a species, we have to recognize that we are actors and we are, frankly, we are like parts of this ecosystem and can't just make it subject to our desires, right? Or subject to our market timetable. Yeah. It's amazing how quickly growing food boils down to like this big spiritual question, (laughs) just like, what are we all doing here? And like, how can we be as harmonious as possible and really think of ourselves as part of nature instead of holding the reins? It makes me think about looking at our own personal consumption. How do we make sure that we're not over-consuming like just taking the amount that we each individually need and not letting our innate fear of lack of abundance just have us hoard resources as individuals. I see that that can kind of plays into this whole conversation of needing to grow, needing to farm, needing to consume type of thing. But I'd love to end with just, you know, we've talked about a lot today and how farming can impact all of us as a species, what would be your wish for the future when it comes to farming? So I think really that the challenge that we have is how are we going to continue to feed, you know, we will eventually will have to feed about 10 billion people. And we're going to have to do so with 3 billion of those people being displaced because of global warming. So what I would love to see or like the my ideal vision for a future of farming is one that essentially marries 
the knowledge that we've gained about what constitutes good food with the idea that we have been exceeding those those limits to this point. And so essentially, that means we're going to have to eat much less meat. We're going to have to grow in a way that is accounts for those externalities that we, to this point, have not been accounting for. And one that relies on essentially an understanding that we are within a, a given ecosystem, right? And so from the consumer standpoint, like what can we do now to, to kind of realize that future of the food system? I think that the two simplest things that we can start doing today are eating less meat and wasting less food. So as you're saying, like valuing the food that we actually do have. And then in the future, having a sense that the fundamental building blocks of life are the growth of plants and the ability to continue to grow food to feed yourselves. And so having a much closer sense that food is something that, and the production of food is something that should be protected rather than solved for in ever increasing ways. So I think like the food system that we're ideally working towards is going to be one that has those, those as sort of primary objectives. The other thing, and I don't want to open up a totally new line of conversation, but is the question of what role GMOs are going to play in this. And I know that this is a whole topic unto itself, but the one thing that I would say in favor of, of GMOs is we theoretically could, if this develops in a way that keeps in mind that we are part of the ecosystem, we could have crops that require far less fertilizer and far less pesticide and are more abundant with the land or more abundant in the land in which they're grown. So whatever the other objections to GMO, many of which are valid, that may be our best or, or only hope. And so in that, practicing in a way, practicing agriculture in a way that the methods are mainly organic in the true sense of the word organic and are growing cultivars that are more productive or that are genetically engineered in some way. I think that would be, you know, broadly speaking, that would be the best way. That's the best shot that we have as a species. Well, we love to end with what we call light work, which is a practice or an exercise or a challenge, something that we give our Sakara Light listeners to help them put what we talked about today into practice and help them shine their lights a little bit brighter. So we'd love for you to share a light work with our listeners. So what I would love for people to do, I just think this is a fantastic exercise, is whatever your favorite meal is, get that meal in front of you and Google what all of the ingredients that go into that meal look like when they're growing in their natural state. Oh, I love that. And remembering that your food does not come from a grocery store. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it comes Amen. from people and the earth and takes a lot of effort and love. Mm -hmm. Amen. Well, thank you for all of the effort and love that you put into the greens that you grow, the greens that you create for Saqqara that go into our clients' bodies, into our own bodies and help nourish us and to feel better and to help us shine our lights a little brighter every day. So thank you. And thank you for joining us today on the Saqqara Life podcast. But thank you guys. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. That was great. Yeah. I love your light work. Yeah. That was a really <laughs> good one. What do we do about all of this? I was watching a documentary the other day. I forget which one it was. I mean, there are so many now on the situation with the environment. And this was one, I think my mom was watching it and I made her turn it off because it was just making me so sad. It was one that was talking about all of the palm farms, I think in Borneo and how they're just cutting down all this rainforest to put up a mono crop, which are palm trees, which is not one that we think about. We think about corn, we think about wheat, we think about soy. We don't think about palm trees, but they were cutting them down and destroying the habitat of thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of different species, including orangutans. And it's really, really sad. And yes, there are certain farms that are orangutan safe and everything, but what about the ones that aren't? And that's just one example of one type of crop that is growing that we don't think about in the world. It just can feel like there's so much to do and 
we don't have any time to waste. And I think the most powerful thing we can do as consumers is be careful of what we consume and not be afraid to ask questions and support brands that are asking the right questions because at the consumer level, your choices matter. But then as you move up into the commercial level, we're sourcing several tons of food every single week. And so our decisions have a big impact on farmers' lives like Jim. And if everyone as a consumer can support companies and brands that are then supporting other people that are later in the chain doing the right things and making the right choices. I think the problem is not everybody knows what to ask. And But I think even just asking what you can. We have to take care of it the best we can. And asking those questions is part of taking care of it. And part of the light work. I mean, the light work is leaning into what's uncomfortable. I think that that's also how change happens, right? If you're asking and I'm asking and all of our Sakara Light listeners are asking, then that also helps inform that berry grower who you emailed that, oh, this matters to people. Organic matters to people. What pesticides I'm using matters to people. And then maybe that influences which ones they choose because if they're using something that they don't want to talk about and they want to hide, then maybe that makes them want to switch to something that they feel good talking about. Yeah. And I think then there's also this balance between what we're speaking to and like cancel culture. So like, how do you be a educated consumer looking out and then also not necessarily in a way that isn't destructive. Yeah. Doing in a way that lifts everybody up. Mm, That's a good reminder that we can help educate people can request and educate and bring light to things. I think we always have to remember that we are all inherently good. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great way to end. Thanks for that reminder, Dee. If you have a Sakara story that you would like to share with us, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at sakarastories at sakaralife.com. That's S-A-K-A-R-A-S-T-O-R-I-E-S at sakaralife.com or send us a DM at sakaralife. Don't forget to hit subscribe for the Sakara Life podcast and share this episode with anyone you think needs to hear what we talked about today. And don't forget about the light work. It might feel a little hard, a little uncomfortable, but it's supposed to. The whole idea is that we lean into what's uncomfortable so we all get to shine our lights a little brighter. And we'll see you on the other side, Sakara Lights. Lights.